Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 19 of the Korean War. Last time we finally delved into the Korean part of the story, an aspect which you could be forgiven for thinking we really should have begun this story with, but as we explained, Korea is just one aspect of the Korean War. Incredibly enough, as our coverage has shown, it's impossible to appreciate the complexities of the conflict unless we look at the superpowers, the lesser powers, and pretty much everyone else in between. We've spent a great deal of time building up the Americans, Soviets, and Chinese, and we've also spent a portion of time examining the leadership in each entity. Foreign policy, of course, is always our forte, and while episodes like these looking exclusively at the background detail of those involved may seem a tad bit detached from our normal formula, it's all necessary because it blends into the one story that we're trying to tell. So today's episode has a few different purposes, the most obvious of which is to track down the person behind the modern-day legend of North Korea's political dynasty. As our coverage established last time, though, the foundation of the divided Korean state is also a story in and of itself, and in this episode we'll take some time to examine how that state developed between 1945-50. to 50. The United Nations is also involved, as are the Americans and Soviets, so it shouldn't be too unfamiliar a story to you guys. The curse of the Korean War is that everything happens in such a squished period of time, and everything happens simultaneously, which of course is why the United States had so many people working in the State Department, but we only have one person working on this war, and that's me, so let's get into it. And a huge thanks again for joining me, if you're joining me for the first time, you'll probably have no idea what's going on, but hey, let's do this anyway. We're going to finally unwrap one of the weirdest, deadliest, and most tragic aspects of the story, North Korea and the Kim family. The Song of the Week this week is brought to you by the History Podcasting Platform. What is the History Podcasting Platform, you might be wondering? Well, if you do not follow When Diplomacy Fails Podcast on social media, at WDF Podcast on Twitter, or When Diplomacy Fails Podcast on Facebook, then you really should, because we announced recently that we were going to start something a bit special. And by we, I mean me, this is all a one-man show, but I announced that I was going to start something a bit special. The History Podcasting Platform is a way for people who would like to launch a history podcast, or for people who have launched a history podcast and would like some feedback or help or publicity, etc., to kind of Get a bit of a leg up. I know that it's hard. If you're listening to this right now and you have a history podcast of your own, then you know it's hard too. And if you're listening to this right now and you don't have a history podcast, but you'd like to set one up, then the history podcasting platform is for you. It's totally free. All it is is me helping you out, giving you a platform, hence the name, from which you can learn and maybe gain from the fact that I've been doing this for nearly six years. Crazy enough as that sounds. I really want to help you guys. I really want to make history thrive. And I want to make sure that history podcasting is a viable alternative. It's a genuinely proper way for people to learn history. You don't need a history education. I mean, you can't teach history just by listening to history podcasts, but you'll certainly have a pretty good idea of what went on and when and why by listening to them. I want to make history podcasting and history, of course, itself thrive. And to do that, I want to build up a bank of history podcasters who are as dedicated and committed to quality and consistency as I hope you'll think that I am. And in order to do that, I need to make sure that everyone's on the same page, that we don't make bad mistakes, that we don't lose our way, that we don't get pod faded, as some people call it, and that we all have fun while doing it, because it can be a difficult process, and sometimes 
you get lost in worrying about your audience, you get lost in worrying about downloads, worrying about if anyone cares, etc. And you forget that this is supposed to be a hobby, and hobbies are supposed to be fun. So why not check out the History Podcasting platform? Just go to wdfpodcast.com and click on the More section, and then click on History Podcasting platform, or just search History Podcasting platform in Google or anywhere else, because it's the I've checked this before, and this is the only thing that's called that, so it should come up very straightforwardly. In any case, I really want to help you guys, and I can't emphasize enough how, well, really, you guys should contact me if you want help. Don't be afraid, I've already got several people contacting me, and I've been very nice to them, so I'll be very nice to you, I promise. Don't be shy, I've already had several people contacting me, and I've been very nice to them, and I'll be very nice to you as well, so please do get in touch. You can, of course, click on the link below, or if you just want to skip everything and you just want to get in touch with me directly, then email me at wdfpodcast at hotmail.com. Use the subject HPP for History Podcasting Platform, and I'll be drawn to it fairly quickly. Alright guys, so the song of the week this week is actually my wife's favourite song. You see, recently we had my favourite song, which was Shaving Cream. And that got a great amount of feedback. You guys really seem to get a kick out of that, and I'm not surprised. It's still beyond me why they don't use shaving cream for one of those Gillette ads or something. Anyway, I'm not getting paid to market Gillette, so I won't talk about them. But I will talk about the song of the week. And the song of the week this week is Golden Slippers. It was a song released in 1909 by the Fisk University Jubilee Quartet. It's a bit of a mouthful as, a, as artists go, but it's a really, really good song. So I hope you guys enjoy it, and we'll be back afterwards with episode 19 of the Korean War. What kind of shoes are going to wear? Golden slippers. What kind of shoes are going to wear? Golden slippers. Golden slippers. I'm bound to wear lots and glittering stones. Oh, yes, 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 my lord. I'm going to join the heavenly choir. Yes, 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 my lord. I'm going to roll the cross. In retrospect, his arrival in Pyongyang was as timely as it was inauspicious. Kim Il-sung was a 30-year-old captain in the Korean branch of the Red Army, was a known communist, and had fought a guerrilla war against the Japanese in Manchuria for the last few years. Contrary to what we may have expected, Kim was not instantly appointed the supreme leader of North Korea, nor was he even in a position of relative power by the time he arrived in the Soviet-administered portion of Korea in late September 
1945. What Kim did have going for him was a relatively high profile as a tenacious communist, but most importantly, he had also appeared on the radar of Joseph Stalin. The Soviet chairman liked what he saw. Another thing that Kim had going for him was the fact that he arrived in Soviet-occupied Korea at a time when Moscow's disparate agents in the region were beginning to tire of the provisional government that they had in fact set up. The ad hoc nature of the Korean situation meant that the Soviets didn't arrive in the region with an instant plan for establishing communism or immortalizing a particular dynasty. What they wanted was a measure of stability, cooperation with the native Koreans, and a chance to implement over time the means through which Korea could be unified under their flag. As it stood in the immediate post-war months of 1945, these were the Soviet aims, but Stalin was nothing if not flexible. Cho Man-seek was the what-if candidate for North Korea, as the Soviets had invested much time and expended a great deal of patience putting up with this senior Korean nationalist. The reasons for the Soviet tolerance of Cho, a man in his mid-fifties and a self-proclaimed senior on all matters of Korean independence, can be explained first and foremost by the fact that the Soviet agents on the ground felt that they had little choice. Communism was a negligible minority movement in North Korea by the end of the Second World War, and what Koreans who adhered to communism remained in the country, they were seen as untrustworthy due to their lack of exposure to Soviet ideals. In addition, Cho Man-seek was valuable because he could grant the Soviet regime in Korea an element of legitimacy. He could be waved in front of the North Korean people to prove that the true people's democracy was taking shape. Yet, before long, the choice of Cho presented problems, not least of which was his whole demeanour and apparent lack of respect for the Soviet authorities, something which these Soviet authorities, most of them military men at heart, were not quite used to. One such official recalled Cho Man-seek's behaviour, saying, During a conversation, Cho Man-seek would sit in a chair motionless, with eyes closed as if asleep. From time to time, he slightly moved his head in agreement or disagreement. He behaved as the most senior among those present, obviously being of the opinion that the less he talked, the more authoritative he would seem. The Soviets could grin and bear Cho Man-seek's impetuosity for the time being, though, and as the historian Andrei Nikolaevich Lankov explained, for a time, grand plans for Cho's career continued to be imagined. Lankov wrote, In the autumn of 1945, Soviet leaders met Cho regularly and tried to convince him to head the emerging North Korean administration, but the negotiations proved very difficult. A person of right-wing allegiances with a strong dislike for the communists and an equally strong distrust of foreign powers, Cho Man-seek would have to cooperate with the Soviet authorities only on his own terms, including, for instance, a demand for extensive autonomy. So long as the Soviets weren't quite sure what they planned to do with North Korea, it didn't necessarily matter that Cho Man-seek appeared more like a copy of Sing Min-ri than a supplicant vassal. Cho was even persuaded to lead the administrative committee of five provinces, which was a proto-governmental body that represented perhaps the earliest Soviet version of a North Korean state. For a time, which like the Americans, the Soviets were flying by the seat of their pants in Korea, but the gradual emergence onto the scene of Kim Il-sung soon changed all that. Kim Il-sung didn't arrive in North Korea alone. He brought with him an exodus of Korean communists with a record of loyal service to the Soviet Union and a nearly spotless track record of doing what they were told. 
With an influx of such men in September 1945, the previous month of searching by the Soviets could be brought to an end. We'll recall that Zhou Manseek had been appointed out of the need for legitimacy, and as an acknowledgement of the fact that so few communists that fit the bill actually lived in North Korea at the time. Kim's return, and the return of several thousands of communists just like him, solved this dilemma, because these individuals could be placed in positions of power, and on the various councils and committees which had since been established. It should be said that even while Moscow wasn't entirely sure of how the Korean Peninsula would look in the future, efforts were made to subordinate its very small native Korean bureaucracy to the Soviet authorities there. And this, knowing what we know about the way the Soviets operated, shouldn't be surprising. Subordinating Koreans to their Soviet advisors, and I use that term very loosely, was made far easier because the Soviets presented themselves almost exclusively as military leaders, and thanks to the dearth of useful Koreans, they didn't have much trouble wresting obedience from those in their employ. Of course, this wasn't true for Cho Man-seek, who had become something of a law unto himself, and had used his power to advocate the unification of Korea under his leadership, among other unpalatable ideas. Since the Soviets and Americans continued to play along with the notion of a trusteeship for Korea, with the eventual goal of unification by negotiated means, Cho's ambitions were becoming problematic and embarrassing. The only problem was, if the Soviets removed Cho Man-seek, who could they use to replace him? Who else retained the same levels of popularity and notoriety as Cho Man-seek? Well, enter, as we saw, Kim Il-sung. The process by which Moscow selected, groomed and appointed Kim Il-sung was about as straightforward as the Soviet Union's actual administration of North Korea. Contemporary narratives suggest that Kim travelled to meet Stalin, where the Soviet leader appointed him the leader of North Korea and the leader of the Communist Party. However, several problems with this version of the story arise when we consider how history actually progressed for the remainder of 1945. First of all, we know that these spontaneous haphazard nature of Soviet administration in Korea had led them to this point in the first place. It was for the very reason that they were so unprepared for Korea that they had been forced to rely on an independently minded patriot for legitimacy, just as they had been forced to rely on soldiers holding political advisory roles, or somehow neglected to bring any Korean translators with them to Korea when they first arrived. Even the method of choosing Pyongyang as the capital of North Korea was haphazard, and it was only done because of its close proximity to where the Soviets happened to garrison much of their armed forces. If we accept that the Soviets planned for nothing in Korea, really, from the start, but did plan to appoint Kim Il-sung, then that contradiction can't help but seem strange. Aside from that inconsistency, though, Kim was not actually appointed as head of the Communist Party in North Korea, nor did he take the reins from Cho Man-seek. The Soviets had to groom Kim first, they had to present him to the North Korean people, so that these people could know him as the Soviets did. In addition, some time was needed to give the communists the opportunity to make their policies and ideology felt in the different administrative bodies of the occupation bureaucracy. It is a mark of how precarious and ill-defined the Soviets believed their hold on Korea to be, that they didn't just march into Pyongyang and unfurl the red flag as had been done in much of Eastern Europe. Both Moscow and Washington had to deal with an absence of tradition and history where their rule in Korea was concerned, and as much as neither power would have too many reservations about putting any kind of insurgency down, it was surely easier to co-opt the favour of the people so long as they had the chance. 
It was highly unlikely that the Soviet chairman would have taken time out of his schedule to visit a lowly Korean officer, even if Kim Il-sung had been tipped for success. Stalin remained unenthusiastic about North Korea, especially since the native support for the kind of regime that he wanted to set up there was limp at best. There would have been far more nationalists of a far-right persuasion than communists in Korea as a whole, but the arrival of Kim and his grooming was aimed at booking this trend. It was on the 14th of October 1945 that Kim Il-sung spoke publicly for the first time. History has recorded this as a rally where some 100,000 Koreans gathered to honour Kim, but in reality, the very speech which Kim gave was aimed at laying much praise at the feet of the Soviets, of the Red Army and at Stalin. It was a typical speech performed by so many disenchanted Eastern European vassals. The difference here was that Kim passionately believed what he had said. Few of those assembled, you'll be interested to know, had even heard of Kim Il-sung, and the event was certainly not the defining moment in Kim's glorious destiny that one regime in particular today would like to paint it as. The embarrassing foreign sign of approval, the Soviet Order of the Red Banner, was removed from his chest in the retouched photographs of the event. To modern audiences of North Korea, this speech attested to the proud and brave past of the patriotic warrior, and was completed on his own merit, as he drew in the vast stores of adulation of his people. The people are my god, Kim Il-sung would later claim. In mid-October 1945, though, Kim Il-sung's god, the people of North Korea, were puzzled rather than awed, yet the perceptive among them would have discerned that there must have been a reason why this passionate, loyal communist was suddenly being pushed to the forefront of the Soviet Korean administration in so public a manner. Little did they imagine, of course, the extent to which affairs in Korea were about to change. Kim Il-sung was born as Kim Song-ju in the village of mangyong day near Pyongyang, on the 15th of April, 1912. His parents, surprisingly enough, were both Christians and involved in the native resistance movement against the Japanese. To escape the Japanese above all, Kim travelled with his family northwards into Manchuria in 1919. Apart from a brief period when he returned home for schooling, Kim would live in Manchuria until he was 29 years old, in 1941 when he moved into Soviet lands. Likely because of the exodus of his family and their resulting impoverishment, his parents both died young. His father died in 1926, aged only 32, and his mother died in 1932, aged only 40. A younger brother also died in the same period, leaving Kim almost completely alone in Manchuria, whereupon he entered Chinese school, but left shortly thereafter, aged only 14, to take part in communist activities. Thanks to Japanese police records, we can find traces of Kim Il-sung at a meeting tasked with forming a communist youth group in 1929, and the death of his mother seemed to have spurred him on to joining the Chinese Communist Party, a guerrilla movement which became more important with the arrival of the Japanese in Manchuria in 1931. In many ways, Kim's development mirrors that of Syngman Rhee, even down to the fact that both men changed their birth names and both were surrounded by Christian influences from an early stage. What was most notable about each man's life was the impact that opposing the Japanese encroachment had on how both Rhee and Kim chose to live. Both men, despite their differences, did hold one thing very much in common. 
that is, their ingrained sense of nationalism, which led them to utterly oppose the Japanese imperialism that so dragged Korea down. Historian Adrian Buzo commented on the overlaps between the two men, as well as the overlaps between the communist and right-wing groupings. Buzo wrote, The Japanese penetration opened Korea to a wide range of modernizing influences, and in this process many members of the Korean intelligentsia became aware of their country as an independent nation-state for the first time. Modern Korean nationalism dates from the first sustained perceptions of the threat posed by imperialism in the 1880s and the need to adopt state-strengthening countermeasures. It developed at a time when government efforts at self-strengthening were largely ineffective and grew to maturity under a harsh colonial regime. It was conditioned both by subsisting features of the traditional political culture and by the context of a failing Korean dynasty and colonial rule. Although Kim Il-sung had little contact with other sections of the nationalist movements, he shared a number of common features with them. We've seen before how comparisons to Irish or Polish nation-states come to mind when describing the experience of the Korean people, but it is worth reiterating that Korea, like Ireland and Poland, had a history of unitary existence and made a great use of that history for the sake of its nationalist rhetoric. At the same time, though, the Korean people north and south of the Divide felt their own ideology before they felt their nationhood. This was because even though Koreans knew that a Korea had been here before, what it meant to be Korean was a subject that could evoke passionate debate and very different answers from different parts of the peninsula. As Adrian Buzo continued, To individual Korean nationalists, Korea was an abstract concept which they extrapolated from concrete experiences within particular groups, usually ordered around a dominant personality, a common education background, a common regional identity, or a common clan affiliation. The most prominent Korean nationalists, such as both Ri and Kim, went outside of their homeland to further Korean interests, and as a result they missed out on the modernization and industrialization of their country, which began under Japanese direction in the 1930s. A side effect of this was that, unless they maintained a very public profile abroad, any would-be Korean leader returning to his homeland after the Japanese occupation would find it vastly different to the homeland he had once known, and he would find himself to be subject to that question, who the heck are you? Being an unknown to the Soviets meant that you stood no chance of advancement, let alone leadership. So one had to have something of a public profile for the facade of a people's democracy to properly play itself out, otherwise the idea that a given leader was being imposed on the people would begin to take root. Kim was fortunate in this regard thanks to his genuine bravery and exploits in fighting against the Japanese in Manchuria, yet the lukewarm reaction he received when first presented to the people signalled to the Soviet authorities that more public character building would be necessary if Kim Il-sung was to take the reins from Chou Man-seek. Kim Il-sung's character development throughout the 1930s, before the Second World War broke out, thus depended upon the Japanese, whom he constantly engaged in guerrilla warfare with, in varying degrees of intensity. What we do know about him is that he finally adopted his famous name Kim Il-sung in 1935, a name taken from, according to one historian, a legendary hero in the Robin Hood mould, said to be a champion of the common people against the hated landlord class. With the insurgency reaching a boiling point in 1937 as the Sino-Japanese War resumed, 
the path towards the Second World War and the War in the Pacific was open. After some considerable successes, though it's difficult to say how much truth exists in the tales of this part of Kim's career, the Japanese were forced to hunt Kim and his band of fighters in the backwoods of Manchuria, but the Tiger, as Kim became known if you can believe that, always managed to slip away. Pursued relentlessly, Kim seems to have slipped across the border into the Soviet Union at some point in 1941, whereupon he became an officer in the Red Army. By this point, Kim had spent so long in Manchuria that he barely could speak any Korean at all, and he would have to be taught to recite his first Korean speech in mid-October 1945. For Kim in the early 1940s, though, the eventuality of ruling over any kind of Korea was still a long way off. Indeed, for the first few years, Kim worked to build up the Communist Party in the Korean diaspora, in addition to maintaining his military command. The details of his activities are typically sketchy, since the Red Army was technically not at war with the Japanese at this point, and thus had no business in Manchuria, but Kim nonetheless emerged as a prominent member of the Korean Communist Party, and he was young enough for the Soviets to actually invest something in him at only 32 years old by 1945. For Moscow even to consider him and to dispense with the image of Cho Man-sik though, Kim would have to find a way to rebuild the Communist Party in Korea and adapt to the challenges posed by his homeland's marked transformation since he had last visited in the early 1920s. As Adrian Buzo noted, this would not be an easy task. He wrote, The Korean Communist movement, therefore, functioned as a collection of different movements, each possessing distinct organisations, hierarchies, histories and personal networks. By 1945 it had not attempted to hold a party congress, nor had it held any broadly representative meetings. It had no recognised headquarters, it published no theoretical journals, and its platform and policies were poorly developed or articulated. It had no widely recognised leader or leadership group, nor any individuals with reputations for providing ideological, theoretical or practical guidance to the communist Korean movement as a whole. It possessed no means of building a grassroots organisation within the country. Few, if any, of its members had ever set foot in the settled areas of Korea and were therefore unknown to most Koreans. So that begs the question, how on earth was Kim to succeed in the segment of his country now under Soviet influence? Well, the same way he achieved all of his early successes, by the divine wisdom of his supreme and benevolent authority. In other words, the Soviet Union and its Red Army. To give him credit though, for the sake of fairness, one does have to admit that Kim Il-sung was a strong leader, a passionate communist and a brave soldier. Critically for his later development, he was also able to take advice and adapt to difficult situations. The countless organisations he fought under as a communist in the hazy 1930s showed that Kim could play well with others, be they Chinese, Koreans, Mongolians or Russians etc. While it is very difficult to look at the man without feeling strong and negative feelings considering the ugliness that would come from him and the damage he would do not merely to the world but to the Korean people, to this day that is, I would be telling a bare-faced lie if I didn't draw attention to his genuine abilities. It was while living the life of a solitary rebel, rarely in contact with very large groups and totally excluded from the kinds of cultural or linguistic nationalist movements elsewhere in the Korean diaspora, that Kim's character was shaped. He was taught to be suspicious of outsiders and to observe strict discipline. He was also taught to hide his true feelings, to remain close only to a closed circle of peers, 
and to be utterly ruthless when necessary. When the war between the Soviet Union and Japan ended, after lasting only a week, Kim and his division that were formed especially to become involved in this war, were disbanded, and this must have seemed to signal the end of his hopes for maintaining any kind of military posting in the Soviet Union. Worse for Kim, Stalin didn't even look for him when it became clear that a Soviet occupation of Korea would follow. He seemed to believe that such a figure as Kim Il-sung would only complicate the picture. Indeed, this plan to exclude the Korean communists from any Korean government or Soviet communist government in North Korea became less appealing around the same time that Cho Man-sik stopped taking on board Soviet instructions. Searching for some Korean communists to fill the liaison role between the Soviets and the Korean people, and hopefully reduce the influence of Cho Man-sik in the process, Kim and 66 of his officers were instructed to travel to the north, and they landed in the country along with their Soviet peers in the last few weeks of September 1945. What followed was a very gradual evolution of the Korean state. Over the space of six months, the Soviets gradually dispensed with Cho Man-sik, who disappeared, never to be seen again, by spring 1946, and Korean communists began to fill the vacant roles in the administration. Remember also that it wasn't until spring 1946 that the Cold War began to set in, and a freeze between Moscow and Washington loomed. A trusteeship and mutual cooperation over the Korean peninsula were, historians genuinely agree, the intended Soviet plan for Korea. Short of this option, a people's democracy in the north, or a united Korea with a strong leftist bias, would be expected to eventually lean towards the Soviet Union, pulling the Korean state with it. It is worth emphasising that to a large extent, the Soviets were correct in their assertions that the creation of a communist North Korea would be fraught with problems, the foremost among them being a lack of popular support for the Communist Party. As late as December 1946, when elections for the South Korean legislature took place, only 4% of the votes went to communists. Although this figure referred to the American, that is, the southern administered part of the peninsula, that number still tells a story. There was no magic button that the Soviets could press. There was no cynical membership surge in the Communist Party in Korea, as there had been in the likes of Romania and Bulgaria. The Korean population north and south were far too varied. The geography of the region, down to the history between different villages, all affected how one would see one's potential leaders. Since the communists had a poor record of fighting the Japanese within Korea, they were very good at fighting them outside of it, this counted against them too, as did the availability of more popular rightist candidates who had stayed behind and had made names for themselves in Korean society through their local or regional work. On top of all of this, Kim Il-sung, in spite of the infinite wisdom which he would miraculously acquire later on in life, was at the lower end of the education spectrum. One could say with some accuracy that his education had been war, but this counted against him when most of his political adversaries did have qualifications. Think of Syngman Rhee, who, even as long-term resident in America, still managed to acquire several degrees, a doctorate for crying out loud, to grant his leadership some intellectual legitimacy. Kim Il-sung had no such virtues, but on the other hand, he did have the Red Army. Indeed, the legitimacy granted by the support of the Soviets had the potential to be legitimacy all on its own. In the wearisome traditions of the Stalinist cult, the act of publicly repeating expressions of fanciful thanks to Stalin for his help and benevolence had the effect of reinforcing the position of the Soviet Union 
in daily life. In the case of communists like Kim, these expressions would have been heartfelt because Kim and his comrades felt part of an international brotherhood of communism led by Moscow but directed on the socialist principles which they had fought for. If one allowed an element of romance to enter the equation, the Soviets could be thanked for freeing Korea from Japan and for providing the impetus and means to implement some land reforms which granted the Soviets a great deal of credibility among the lowly peasant class. The high-minded aims of eliminating class distinctions, of the redistribution of wealth and of granting everyone access to health, education and housing services presented the Soviet Union as the utopian big brother capable of bringing about the kind of revolutionary change which had been so long in coming. Since the Korean communists depended upon the Soviets for support, they were also their loudest vocal supporters and presented their case in public to the people in North Korea as a, a no-brainer, a win-win, and as a way to rid the peninsula of the influence of the cruel bourgeois landowner. It was an attractive deal to those that could buy into it, and by late December 1945 it was becoming apparent to Moscow that they did buy into it. The Moscow Agreement, summarised in a communique agreed to by several foreign ministers across the world, was sent out on the 27th of December 1945. Among other resolutions, it set forth the plan for Korea in a somewhat organised fashion at last. As per its Korean articles, the rival United States and Soviet military commands in Korea's south and north of the 38th parallel would introduce a measure of stability to their administrations by setting up a joint commission to make recommendations for a single free government in Korea. Such a government, of course, had the potential to be a complete mess, a Soviet satellite, a peaceful example of post-war governments, or a mixture of all three. Inevitably, almost immediately after agreeing to it, both sides began to view the commission idea with suspicion. An important ruling, and one which added an element of permanence to the divided, occupied peninsula, was the decision that a four-power trusteeship of up to five years would be needed before Korea attained independence. The Koreans, intimated the agreement, simply were not ready or nationally mature enough yet to rule themselves. As the more knowledgeable nations educated the ignorant Koreans then, with an aim towards eventually setting them free, the local concerns on the ground in Seoul and Pyongyang took root instead. Almost as soon as the United States and Soviets discovered that a measure of control could be had through their given candidate, and as soon as the wartime allies slipped back into their old policy of competition once more, this pledge was mostly forgotten. By autumn 1948, the two sides of the 38th parallel would have crystallised, and the peninsula would have its two distinct regimes, and its two still more distinct leaders. But that, history friends, is a story for next time. I hope you've enjoyed our continued look at Korean history since we found the man they call Kim in this episode and in the next episode we can focus on bringing the story of Korea up to 1949. I hope you'll join me then, but for now, my name is Zach and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails, a series on the Korean War. Thanks for listening and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 